chapter 1 will be our text. Always good to hear the church fellowship. As the old country song there says, there's winners and losers yesterday. I don't know what side you guys are on, but those are some good games, and I'm glad to see you out whether your team lost by a hair or not. <laughs> uh, good to see you out. Let's pray, and then we will look into 2 Peter chapter 1. Father, we thank you for this time to gather. What a joy to see so many people out on the first day of the year, which happens to be the Lord's Day. We know that all days are yours, Lord, and Christ every day is a Sabbath to us now. But you have set aside, and we see it so clearly in the New Testament, that Sunday is a day we set aside to worship you together as the community of Christ, the body of Christ, Lord. And what a, what a glorious day this is. Thank you for urging us by your spirit to be here today. We pray for those who want to be here. Lord, there's so many that I know who would love to be here uh, over the holidays, visiting our shut-ins, Lord, what a blessed group of people they are, Lord, um, knowing that they would love to be back here but can't. Lord, may those of us that are healthy, may we not miss these opportunities to be together. We don't know long how long our health holds out. And, but bless those who can't come, Lord. Many are online now, Lord. May they be encouraged too. Lord, thank you for the house of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do want to thank you for those working with our children down in the hall and um, those who watch over our security and so forth, Lord, on a holiday weekend, Lord, thank you that they give up their time to do those. Lord, now we want to be encouraged and challenged to be men and women, boys and girls, who are disciplined by the glory of Christ to run after you. So we pray that you would encourage us as we start another new year to pursue you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know the drill. Every January, the nation begins to clobber us with print, TV, online advertisements, on your phone, everywhere you turn, touting the problem with weight, and you need this, and you got to get these pounds off, and it just is incredible. I looked up a, an actual some stats this week. According to the data by Market Data Enterprises, I think they're out of Tampa Bay, um, a market research f uh, firm that specializes in tracking little niches like this, they said this, and I, I, this is true. Man, small countries could be helped. Americans will spend north of $72 billion on weight loss stuff. Everything from gyms to, to joining some kind of programs to drink, drinking protein shakes to every other gimmick in the world. $72 billion we will spend this year trying to lose weight. I read another article this week that said that doctors are being encouraged to add weight loss programs to their offices because they are lucrative. <laughs> so your doctor is now going to add that in a lot of ways because they see that there's financial gain there. Well, last night was New Year's Eve, and uh, maybe some of you made resolutions. I'm not against them. I'm going to give you some reasons why you should make them and some you should not here in a minute. But I went on to look at where America's top 10 New Year's resolutions are. They've changed. Some have same, but some have changed. Here's what they were this year. They interviewed so many people. Exercise more. Eat healthier, lose weight, save more money. Spend more time with family and friends. That made it into the top 10. Less time spent on social media. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Get healthier, reduce stress, reduce spending, get organized. Some of you deorganized people need to get organized. What dropped out of the top 10 for the first time in several years, volunteer to help others, dropped out of the top 10. <laughs> I hope that's not our church. <laughs> I hope that's in our top 10 to help. I'm so grateful. I, I know who's down the hall. I looked into that just because I wanted to see who would give up their time today to be with our children down there. Um, I think that's very important. Quit smoking and drinking dropped out of the top 10. <laughs> We're just going to give up on that. Um, get a better education. Who needs that? Take a trip. That dropped out. Isn't that interesting? After this travel weekend, I don't think anybody else wants to travel. Uh, reuse and recycle dropped out of the top 10. Isn't that interesting? Being disciplined is something that God challenges us to do. The Word of God teaches us to be disciplined. But not discipline for the sake of just bettering ourselves. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches us to discipline ourselves in order that we may glorify Christ. That's the goal. And, and maybe that is health conscious. For me, I, 
I know you know I lost a few pounds this year. That was a health issue. <laughs> I want to preach for a lot more, long, long more years, right? I want to go another 10, 15 years. I want to preach. And so I had to make some adjustments so that the quality of life could like, allow me to do that. There was, that's the goal, to glorify the Lord. And so is your goal of being disciplined to glorify the Lord? Paul wrote to Timothy, young Timothy, who was his protege who was going to follow up behind him, who spent a good number of at least, we believe, 15 years right on the right hand of Timothy in ministry. He says, listen, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Are you disciplined? Are you disciplined? And is the purpose for godliness? We're going to look at that word in a little bit here. It's in our passage. What does it mean to be godly? And then he goes on to say bodily discipline is, is only of a little profit. So I, I like it. It is good. Get out there, walk, watch your meal a little bit, take care of some calories, things like that. You know, There's a little bit of profit in that, right? So we have longevity. We can serve the Lord well. I just had a dear friend, a pastor, actually replaced me in our church in Hollister, um, died of a heart attack uh, two weeks ago. Just right before Christmas, 47 years old, full family, everything, dropped dead. And they're, you know, just... These things, we, we, we need to take care of the temple, right? And so there is a little profit in that. But then Paul tells Timothy, but godliness, again, we're going to look at that word in a minute, is profitable for all things. Godliness is profitable for all things. To reflect God in our lives is profitable. You want to look at your profit and margin loss? Look at Godliness. God himself is telling us through his word that it is a very profitable thing since it, listen to this, since it holds promises for the present life or right now, right? Godliness gives you promises for now. There's a great reward for pursuing and reflecting the presence of God in our lives. There's a great reward now. But Paul says that not only now, but in the life to come. And then he says this is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. And so disciplining ourselves for the glory of Christ is an important thing for a Christian. It's one of the things that makes us different than the world. We're disciplined. We're here this morning. Guess what the world's doing this morning? Most of them have really severe headaches. <laughs> They're sick. They don't know what day it is. They may have lost a lot of money on one kick last night. <laughs> Not us. Not the church. The church is dedicated to Jesus Christ. We gather. We stimulate one another to good works, Hebrews tells us. We come together. That's, that's that deserving of full acceptance is what we do. Now, what do we do with New Year's resolutions? Is it okay to make them? Well, I think it is. I think you should make some resolutions in your life. And let me use a different word. I think you should make some determinations in your life. Is that a better word? Lord, I would determine to do this for your glory. I want to determine to do these things. Lots of verses and scriptures come to mind. King David said this in Psalms 25, 4 through 5. I'm still in my introduction. These are great verses. Write them down. I gave you some room in your notes. He said this, make me know your ways, O Lord. Well, there's a great determination for the new year. Make me know your ways, O Lord. You know, when you read that, when I read that last of top 10 to you, they were just packed full of selfish things, right? That's what the world does. And we can get drug into that so easy, can't we, brothers and sisters? David said this, make me know your ways, O Lord. The next phrase, he says, teach me your ways. That's a great determination. I'm determined to know God. I'm determined to know his word. I'm determined to know the glory of Christ more in 2023 than I did in 2022. I'm determined to do that. David goes on to say, lead me to your truth and teach me. You are the God of my salvation. There's the reason for it. He saved you. Are you chasing him? Or are you chasing the world? Right? It's, it's hard, right? We've got to pay bills. We have health issues. We have all kinds of things going on. Life is crazy. But are we chasing Christ or are we just chasing our tail? These are good questions, aren't they? First Chronicles chapter 22, verse 19. David is not allowed to build the temple. He was a man of bloodshed and war. And so he gathered everything for Solomon. And Solomon was to build the temple. And the last words that David says to Solomon, after gathering everything in his great prayer, he turns to Solomon, 1 Chronicles 22, 19, and says this, Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. 
Man, I like that phrase. Set your heart and your soul, set the internal being of yourself to go after the Lord. Lord, I want to pursue you this year. I want to pursue you more than I have. I found myself chasing this and that this year. I want to pursue you. This is a great day to make that determination. The nation of Israel went to judgment because they rejected the ways of God, didn't they? First, the northern tribes went in 725 at the hands of the Assyrians. They went off to captivity. Babylon rose over the next 125 years to become the world power. And they conquered Assyria. And when they conquered Assyria, they took in the northern tribes. And then they went after the southern tribes. And after three attempts, they took them in 598. They took them to, to captivity. After 70 years, God released a portion of the nation of Israel, about 50,000 Jews with Ezra and Nehemiah, they headed back to the land. While they were there, they discovered the law of God. Isn't it interesting? When you read this passage, you write, they had not been practicing what God had given them. And they discover a copy of the law and they begin to read it. And the Bible says this about Ezra in chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. And the word law there is the word Torah. It means the didactic instruction of God. I want to study who God is. This is what Ezra said. And then he said this, and I want to practice it. And then furthermore, and teach its statutes and ordinances to Israel. That's a good thing. Dads, this is a great verse for us. I've discovered the word. Again, afresh. The didactic instruction of God. I want to practice it first as a dad, and I want to teach its statutes and ordinances to my family. Moms, single moms maybe. This would relate to you. This is what we do. And so this is good determination. Maybe this is a determination you need to make today. What about pursuing righteousness? That's a word when, when um, you know, we, those of us who are raised in the 60s and 70s, you know, righteousness was a cool word, right? <laughs> Or in my case, I was raised in, oh, you're a holy roller, you're a righteous one of those because you chose to live a different life because of Jesus Christ in your life. Well, righteousness is a good pursuit, isn't it? When we think of the word righteousness, we get the word justified and just, the root word comes to all those things. But when we look at the basic word of righteousness, it means doing things right according to God's standard, right? That's what righteous marriage is, God's standards, <laughs> Not what you think marriage should be. It's righteous according to God's standards. So there's a pursuit of that. Paul told young Timothy several times. He said, but flee from these things. In the context in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, is a love of money. Right? The love of money. So flee from these things. And then he said, you man of God, pursue righteousness. Run after it. Run after it. In his last letter that he wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy, his last letter before he is martyred. He says, flee youthfulness, youthful lust, and pursue righteousness. Pursue the things that are right according to God. But, but Paul, was, Paul had a great balance, didn't he? He knew that there was difficulties in us because we're human, right? We, at times I say, oh, Lord, I am but dust. I am, I am, if this body dies, it returns to dust. I'm very weak. I need your help. I pray that way often. And, and yet the Bible says that we stand in perfection in him and we are to pursue that perfection, right? We're to pursue that every day of our lives. But Paul had a great balance. He said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 and following, he says, not that I've already attained it or have already become perfect. Now, I like this. This, is, this encourages my soul because I know I'm not there. Anybody else been there? If, you, if you've reached perfection, come up here and take over, okay? Because <laughs> I'm still working at these things, right? Of following my Lord. But then he says, But nevertheless, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also, now listen to the phrase of this, was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I want to get on my mind and my heart around the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way I'm going to do that is that I'm going to keep pressing on. Even though I am not perfect, I'm going to keep pressing on. Isn't that good? That's what we do, isn't it? Life is difficult. There's, there's struggles, right? Marriage is hard. Raising children is hard at times, right? There, there, finance is difficult. We live in a, a very divided nation. I mean, we have all kinds of things going on, but as Christians, we're told to press on. And he reminds us that we haven't reached perfection yet in this flesh. 
Someday we'll see Jesus and we'll be like him, 1 John 3, 2. But then he says this, Brethren, I do not regard myself as laying hold of it yet. But one thing I do, now listen to the wisdom of this. This is great counsel on the first day of the year for us. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. See, Christians are moving forward. Now, this doesn't mean that you sweep your sins under the rug and never deal with them. If you have an issue that's causing you deep problems, you need to confess that, repent of it, turn from it, get help, do whatever it takes to get away from that sin. That's not what they're saying. But many people love the past because they just wallow around in it. It's time to keep pressing forward. The day of the Lord is today, and one day he's coming back. And so he tells us, Paul, I mean, think of everything that went through his mind. If he hangs around in the past in his mind, he's a murderer of the church. He's a Pharisee. He's a hater of what Christ was doing. If he hangs around in the past, Satan's going to kick him all over the place, isn't he? I've said this a million times. Satan loves to keep us in the past or the future. Past, I can't get over what I've done. I can't find, my, I can't find forgiveness in Christ, and so I live back there, and I just, I just waller, and, and I just get beat up over there. I think sometimes there's all kinds of people, men, women, saying that. There's other people that are just out in the future all the time. They don't care about the past or the present. If I can just get this, I'll be all right. Now press on. It's all in a present tense. Right now, press on right now. This is what God's calling us to do. So forgetting the things that lie behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, that's, that's what today is about and tomorrow's about. We're pressing forward to what God has for each one of our lives and here's the goal, he says, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ. God is calling us continually tense to himself, to know him, to reflect him. This is why Peter says in his last words that we know inspired by Peter, it says, go gray, now go grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Continue to grow, press forward. Now, we don't want to make careless determinations or resolutions. Those can be dangerous. James uh, chapter 5, verse uh, 12 says that our yes should be yes and our no should be no. So be careful with that, right? It, it's, it, you'll, you'll see, you know, I, I, I like to walk and run a little bit now. And, and uh, I told Gina, I go, I'm waiting for the crowds out there tomorrow. Because <laughs> that's what happens, right? We all go to the gym, you know, we, I made a resolution, I'm going to do all those things. <laughs> Yeah, but man, that coffee cake is really good. And, you know, and uh, how about one more biscuit? And, uh, you know, right? I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? So make sure your yes is yes when it comes to following Christ, right? Lord, you are my God and Savior. I believe in my heart, in my soul, in my internal being of who I am, that Jesus Christ died for my past, present, and future sins. He accomplished it all. He finished it. I add nothing to his work. Now I use that work to motivate me to live for him because he died for me. Sound like a good motivational speech? Came right from the Bible. That's, that's what we do. So, yes, Lord, because of what you've done, Lord, give me strength to be disciplined to follow you. And so you hear me say these things, and I've stolen from people and they've stolen from others. It's not perfection, it's direction. I think that's realistic growth. Not perfection, it's direction. Are you, are you moving towards Christ? Are you allowing the word of God to direct your life or the influences of the world? Moving forward with direction to bring glory to God. Now, I think one of the ways we do this, we have to remember that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. The night before his death, Jesus told the disciples that he is the vine, they were the branches. He who abides in me, I in him. He who bears much fruit, right? He'll bear fruit. If, you, if the branch is, is uh, if the vine is in the branch, right? Or, or excuse me, the branches are grafted into the, to the vine. If that's happening, that's the saved person, right? We were, out of it, we're just dead. You cut a branch off, lay it on the ground, it, it, doesn't, it just dies, right? But if it's grafted into Jesus, it's going to produce fruit. And then it says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So you can't go out and lop an oak branch off and throw it in the ground and, and hope it has acorns next year. It's going to die. But if it's grafted in, it will produce fruit. And so that's what we have to remind, remind ourselves. I can only do this through the strength 
of the Lord. Now, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says this, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He doesn't say be strong in your own character and who you are and your giftedness and all that. He says be strong in the Lord. And then he, I love that last phrase, be strong in his might. Yeah, you know what we're talking about, the one who spoke creation into existence, who holds all things by the word of his power. Be strong in that. See, that's, that's what makes strong and stable Christians. That their, their strength is in the Lord, not in themselves. Oh, the moment you and I do that, we like Peter start sinking, <laughs> don't we? We take our eyes off the Lord. Paul told Timothy, um, again, the letter before his death, 2 Timothy 2.1, Therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Isn't grace beautiful? I am saved because of what Jesus has done. That's an amazing grace, isn't it? Be strong in that. Hebrews chapter 12 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so we are reminded, yes, there are things we should determine to do, but we do these through the strength. We press on. We don't get bogged down. We confess, repent of sin, and move forward towards our Lord and Savior. But all this takes discipline, doesn't it? And discipline is a biblical practice within the church. We've seen that in several of these uh, great passages I've given you. Uh, I wanted to give you just a couple more. As I was writing this, I thought <laughs> there's a million passages you can think of. But I, my mind went into Proverbs. When it, one time through my Bible reading I did with Proverbs is I took the word wisdom and knowledge and I replaced it with Christ. Because I, how I got to this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the, there the Bible says that Jesus Christ is both the wisdom and knowledge of God. So here we have the wisdom literature and, and Proverbs. And so I just read through the book of Proverbs, particularly those early passages that are in wisdom. I read through those and I replaced the word wisdom and knowledge and I put Jesus there. And they come out like this, Proverbs chapter 2, 2 through 5. Here's a, here's a sample of it. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Now let me read it the other way. Make your ear attentive to Christ. See, if Paul says he's the wisdom and knowledge of God... I think that's okay to do this, right? Make your ear attentive to Christ. Incline your heart to understand Christ. For, you, for if you cry for discernment, if you cry out for Christ, if you lift up your voice for understanding for Christ, if you seek Christ like silver, if you search Christ for like a hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and you will discover the knowledge of Christ. See, that's determination. And it takes discipline to do those things. I think what happens is sometimes we stay nursing the spiritual bottle, the spiritual bottle, right? And so Hebrews 5, 13 and 14 warn us of that. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. And so I think that's what's happening to American church. I heard a statistic this week that 84% of American churches did not meet on Christmas Day. That gives you a little clue where we're at, folks. <laughs> But the Bible tells us that people that are nursing that bottle don't understand the word of righteousness. So no wonder the church doesn't understand what God says about marriage and life and the womb and, and a million other things that the Bible is so clear on. Because they, they're nursing a bottle and, and what that bottle is, oh, me, 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 right? When our little guys are little, they, they, they don't think about helping with the dishes or helping you cook dinner, right? Where's my food? And that's what the church is at today. But then there's a great but that starts, a conjunction, verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, who because of, listen to this word, practice, discipline, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Oh. I mean, I read this verse this week and I thought, Lord, that's, that's where our church is at in America. They can't discern simple things what God says. I just started my Bible reading program this weekend for the Read Through the Bible this year. I'll share it with you in a minute. And I'm in Genesis 1. And it is so clear that God makes man in his image, both male and female. He determined that. I'm all the way to Noah now. He's putting on the ark two of every kind, male and female. Huh. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? You don't get reproduction without that. <laughs> and yet... I am who I want to be 
because that's who I am inside. What? See, see, this is, I'm not talking about the world. This is in the church today in America. When they're overseas, the pastors say, what's going on over there? Some of the stuff that's coming out of your guys' churches is scaring us. See, are you nursing a bottle? Because if you are, you're just going to be, I want the next bottle. I want this. I want that. I want that. But if you're tasting and chewing on solid food, you begin to practice and you'll have senses to discern what's good and evil. And what you'll have, and this I want to make a real clear statement, then I'm going to give you a passage, I promise. Um, um, is you'll not be a conservative Christian. Listen to me very carefully here. You'll be a biblical Christian. I think there's a huge difference. And you and I are going to feel it over the next decade. You, you can't trust politics, can you? So conservative Christians are changing, aren't they? They're buying into all kinds of, they're signing off on all kinds of things, right? We are not conservative Christians. We're biblical Christians. That's a big difference, isn't it? We hold what we believe from the authority of God's word. We stand on that. No matter what the conservative or liberal or whatever group out there does, this is our truth. We stand on it because it does not change like the shifting shadows of fallen man. We hold tight here. And so if you want to discern what's happening in this world, you've got to be a student of God. You've got to be captured by the glory of Jesus. He's got to be everything to you. All I have is, we just sang it, didn't we? All right, well, let's get into this passage in 2 Peter. I'll go through this fairly quickly because this is a fun passage to remind us of our growth, right? And let me ask a couple questions here. Number one, here we go. What is the source of a Christ-glorifying, disciplined life? What is the source? What's behind all this? Well, look at Peter says, verse 1, Peter, Simon, Simon Peter, we know him, Right? Lover of Jesus Christ, denier of Christ the night before his death. Uh, we know everything about this guy, but man, did God get a hold of him because now look at him. He's a bondservant. He's a lifer. He's an apostle. It means he was sent personally by Jesus Christ. There are no more apostles, no matter what the guy down the street thinks. Um, there are only men who Christ sent himself. That's an apostle, period. Everything else is deception. Now look what he says. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Isn't that a beautiful statement? You don't have Peter, whom some churches call the first Pope of Rome. Peter's not going, well, hey, you know, us 12, you know, we had to add Matthias, but we have been given this unique faith that is up and above yours, and you should be striding for ours. Somebody says it all. Look at, look at what he says. We've received the same faith as you. Saving faith is saving faith. Now, there are measures of faith. We've looked at this and we're in the gifts. We're going to get back to that in 1 Corinthians next week. Um, that God gives a measure of faith to help you get through difficult things or gives somebody gifts to, to bring glory to him. That's not what we're talking about here. He's talking about saving faith. He says, I have the same faith as yours. So, first of all, your first motivating source for a Christ-glorifying, disciplined life is he gave you faith. If you don't have faith, if you have not given the gift of faith, you may know there's a Jesus out there, you may think there's a God out there, but you're not saved. You've got to have a God-given faith. That's a great gift, and it's a great source, isn't it? I have faith, so I can be disciplined. Look at verse 2. So much here comes by the righteousness of God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ. You hear me say God, our Savior, all the time. It's because the Bible uses a conjunction between God and Savior and makes them equal and then says Jesus Christ. This says this several times in the Scriptures. So all those who don't believe that God, Jesus is God, just show them these passages. And if they know anything about languages, it means that chi, that and, that holds those two together, God and Savior, is declaring the equality of God and Savior. And then there's a comma, and then there's Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? And it's by his righteousness that we're saved. Okay, there's a quick soteriological lesson. Two, look at verse two. Grace and peace be multiplied, multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, our God, our Jesus, our Lord. So the next thing we have for this source of a God-glorifying, disciplined life is grace and peace. Isn't that beautiful? And now, God has a common grace, right, on the world. 
The West is finally getting rain out there. I was just talking to family members over the weekend. Um, and then the lakes are so down, and there's just no water in the West, and they are just getting pounded right now. And my mom and I were talking yesterday, and we just talked about that God is just gracious, gracious to sinful man. And believe me, California is probably in the bottom of the bucket <laughs> in a lot of ways. And he's sending rain to them, much-needed water. So there is a common grace, but that's not what this is talking about. Grace and peace, this is God's unmerited favor that granted you this faith that Peter had. It is his grace that gives us. What comes with it is a peace. You're no longer at war with God. This is motivation to be disciplined. This is motivation to walk with God in your difficult situations that you have. Look at verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, seeing that you you know this, right? Because you have faith, you've received grace and peace. Now you can see what he's done. He's through his divine power has granted. This is a beautiful thing. This is passive, right? He's done this to us. We didn't get this on our own. We didn't choose him on our own. He chose us. The Bible's very clear on that. He granted us this salvation. And in this salvation, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Now, I think life is salvation. Godliness is the daily stuff. Look at that. And I would really encourage you to write that down in your Bible because maybe you'll read this passage and not remember that. Life is eternal life there, I believe. And godliness is the daily stuff. He grants you everything you need through the finished work of Jesus Christ to accomplish these things. That's, That's a great motivation. To go and say, God, I want to I read my Bible this year. I want to read for, through it all. I want to join a soul care group, whatever it may be. I, I want to live for you. I want to know you better. I want to treasure you more in my heart. This is great motivation for these things. And notice, you see in verse 3, it's all done through Jesus. It's done through him. He's our, he's our great source. He's our great motivating factor. Look at verse 4. I love this verse. For by these things, he has granted to us his precious, magnificent promises promises. What can those promises be? Well, let's start with this. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How do you like that for a promise? You will never see my judgment because I judge Jesus in your place. That's a pretty good promise, isn't it? I will never ever stand before God and be judged for my sins, past, present, or future, right now because they were all judged on Jesus. He put the full weight, the wages of sin was death. He put that full weight on Jesus Christ for me. Now that's a promise, isn't it? Can I get an amen? Amen. How about it, Bobby, huh? Come on, stop talking to me, man. This is good stuff. I mean, I love this. I mean, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Right? Right? Psalms 115 says that gods have ears, but they cannot hear. Their mouth, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. It goes down. He's mocking the gods of the nations because that's what they are. We just got back from Egypt. All kinds of gods. We saw all that stuff. They're all dead. They can't hear. They can't see. They can't do anything. There is one God, one true God. And we know him clearly through Jesus Christ. And he says, I'll never, never leave you. That's a magnificent promise. And I know some of you feel lonely. Some of you are going through hard times. You feel rejected. I know you're going through some of those things. Look, I've been there. I'll be there again. But Bible tells me he won't leave me. We've got to cling to that, brothers and sisters. This is a God who loves us in, in depthly forever, right? And he gives us eternal life. So many things. We can go on and on, right? But notice, through the true knowledge of him who called us, by his own glory and excellence. Well, there's so much to unpack here, but I'll do this quickly. There's a true knowledge and there's a what? False knowledge. Well, I'm here because I chose Jesus. Man, you, I, look, I teach people, <laughs> pray prayers, preach. I teach them, oh, please believe in Jesus. I, I love to beg people to believe in Jesus. Ultimately, you know but who, that it's God drawing them and will disciple them as we go along. But when we think about a true knowledge, A true knowledge rejects a false knowledge that I had something to do with my salvation. It starts to say, yeah, Scott Menez lived a pretty innocent life. I was raised in a Christian home. I've been saved over 50 years. I married a beautiful woman who loved Jesus. Uh, God gave us four children. I I mean, God has really... I, I haven't seen what some of the other people have seen. 
I, I just praise the Lord for that. And no, I'm no greater or better. But if I was to lean on that in any way and say, oh, God saved me because I was raised in a Christian home and I didn't do this and chew and go with girls who do and all that stuff. Um, uh, that's not true knowledge, is it? Here's true knowledge. Scott, you were born a reprobate. <laughs> you were born depraved. You were born already with the wrath of God upon you. And if it wasn't for the grace of God that it would remove that, love you, draw, him to, draw you to himself through the finished work of Jesus Christ, you would have no relationship with me. See, that's true knowledge. See, that's true knowledge. And that makes a worshiper, doesn't it? Because now I'm pulled out of the situation. Now I can worship freely because I don't add anything to it. Isn't that beautiful? And notice he does it through his own glory and excellence. You know, we think about God and who he is. Here's two words that probably are some of the most striking words about him. He's glorious and he's excellent. And so that means he called me wretched man, young man raised in, in Northern California. He called this guy who didn't deserve anything. He called me through his impeccable glory and his excellent decisions and wisdom and plan. He did that all for, for me. Isn't that beautiful? See, this is the source that pushes us, right? Now, what about this phrase, partakers of divine nature? That's an interesting phrase. The Bible says that we're partakers of God's divine nature. God's eternal. God's existed. He's been around forever. He had no beginning, has no end. You know, our, our life is, is a, a line, right? It has a beginning and it goes on forever. You either are forever with Christ in heaven or you're forever in hell under punishment. God's is this perfect circle in a sense. He never has a beginning, never has a start. You just, he's always been. So how do I share in a partaker of his divine nature? How do I have that, right? Some of the Mormon faiths and others begin to say, well, you become an, your own little God. You'll get your own planet and all that stuff. That's hogwash. It's a lie from the pit of hell. So how do I become a partaker of divine nature? Well, number one, the Bible says that God, through Jesus Christ, gave me his son's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became what? Sin for us. So there's a doctrine of imputation, right? So sin, the sin of Scott was put on Jesus Christ, and the righteousness of Christ was put on Scott. Now, if that isn't a partaker of the divine nature of God, I don't know what is. Because I didn't get righteous on my own, and neither did you. You got righteous because our God, through Jesus Christ, imputed his son's righteousness to you as he took your filthy rags and imputed them to his son so his son could pay for them. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, it's the old switcheroo with a great ending. I got rid of what would drag me to hell and I got will allow me to stand in the presence of God forever. Did you catch that? I mean, that's, that's quite a switch, isn't it? A couple other things. We also got the Spirit of God. The triune God, the God of all eternity, who spoke things into creations, hold things all in the power of his word, of his hand, right? That God has now placed his spirit within all believers, with this guy who needed salvation. I'm a partaker of him because he's put his spirit within me. Now, he tells me not to quench it, but it does not come and go. It is with me from the time of salvation. I am indebitably marked with the Spirit of God. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? That's salvation. What about our position in Christ? The Father only looks at us in His Son. Yes, He sees you individually. He made you who you are. He uniquely gifts each one of His children and unique gifts to bring him glory, but he always looks at Scott in his son. He does not look at me outside. He looks at me in his son. Isn't that beautiful? What about our salvation is protected by God? Earlier in the first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, Peter says that our salvation is protected by God. That means he's right with us. We, re we get the character of God now, right? We actually there are some communicable attributes that we get from God. We actually now know how to love unconditionally. We don't always practice it, but we can. We can be kind. There's certain things of God now that we can do because God has this innate relationship with us. We experience the character of God. 
And we have fellowship with the Trinity. And we go on and on what that means. But i got to get moving. Second question. Well, what's the response of those seeking to have a Christ-glorifying, disciplined life? What is the response of this? Well, look at this great motivation, verse 5. Now, for this very reason, well, if you're a Bible student, you go, well, what reason? Well, the one we just talked about for four verses, and I'm over time on those because it was so exciting, right? It's all of that stuff, right? For that reason, for, for the faith and the grace and peace and the divine power granted us and the godliness and the life and all the partakers of his divine nature, all of that, for that reason. That's where this response comes from. Notice verse 5 says, For that reason also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and your moral excellence, knowledge. Now, for this reason, but everything is true, here's the method. Apply all diligence. I like that word because now we're getting into that discipline, right? There, there's, a, there's passion here. There's practice here. There's diligence. We, we love diligence, don't we? If you're a mom, you love it when your children are diligent, right? Get your homework done. Get your chores done. Get the table set, right? Isn't that nice when they do those things? I mean, diligence is good, right? Good, uh, people who, who are bosses or, or, or have employees or something like that, you love diligence, right? You're going to make money when people are diligent. <laughs> diligence is a good thing, right? So he says, apply diligence to this. And notice the first principle here, which is built on. Now, this is very important. Apply all diligence in your faith. Now, he doesn't say apply faith. He says, apply these things to your faith. This is very, very important. Now, we already realized that your faith is God-given, right? We talked about that. So if I was to build a little pyramid maybe here, the bottom foundation, if I was to draw this out, would be faith, a God-given faith on that bottom one. And what Peter's going to do, he's going to give us a list of things that we build everything according, uh, on that faith. You want to be diligent? Do you want to be disciplined in your life? This is the passage to help you do it. So upon our faith that we just talked about in those first four verses, we would put that as our base, our foundation of everything we're going to do here in the rest of this passage. God-given faith. You can draw that in your notes. Draw a little base to that. A God-given faith. And that's such an important thing because that comes from God, comes from the finished work. But notice he uses the word supply. So now he's going to start a list of things. Uh, We don't supply our faith. God gives us our faith. And so now he's going to supply things that we add on top of that, that foundation. Now, the word supply is a great word used for uh, military leaders who supply their warriors with the right things to fight wars. It's used of a choir member to give them sheet music and instruments and all those type of things. It's, it, here's the things you need to be diligent. Starts with a very important one. I think these are things that happen when, when you get God-given faith, moral excellence. How many people do you know that got saved and they turned away from things that they were in that was dead wrong, according to the scriptures. It's actually one of the beautiful things to see the Spirit of God come into some, somebody who's controlled by all kinds of, you know, whatever substances or whatever else. And by the strength of God, they start to turn away from those things. I don't know how many people I met with who were um, living together or doing something. And they, got, they received Jesus Christ and they said, hey, we've been reading our Bible. That's probably not what God wants us to do. Hey, really? Yeah. And, and let's talk about that. Instead of going, well, okay, now that you're a Christian, here's a list of 10 things. Make sure you get them done by the next time we meet. You teach them Jesus, and they start seeing this stuff, right? They go, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't think our life is pleasing to the Lord. There's some great testimonies in this room of people who were in uh, immoral relationships, got saved, and what, the, and what God did in their lives is amazing. You should talk about your testimony. That's why we give testimonies. And so what we add here now to the moral excellence, and here's what I call this moral excellence, is this outward goodness flowing from an inward God-given faith, right? Because if we just say, hey, be morally excellent, go out there, come on, you know, don't, don't do this, keep, you know, don't have long hair. You know, I was raised with no hair on the ear, and girls had to have skirts here. I mean, I was raised in all that stuff. No, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about that there's a moral excellence that flows from you because of a God-given faith. That's, that's real difference, right? That's God's changed you. Notice that we add knowledge to the next building block on top of that. Remember that all the base, all the foundation is this God-given faith, right? So moral excellence, this outward goodness is flowing from this God-given faith. This next one is knowledge. So now we start applying spiritual knowledge to practical situations in life. We start growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. 
and, and if you have an immoral problem, right, if you're doing something contrary to the Bible and you know that it's wrong, it'll be very, very difficult to understand what God says. Because you're saying, I want to read this and know this, but I want to do this over here. It'll be very difficult. And so faith starts to change things. It starts to change our, our moral outlook on life because God's changed us inwardly, right? Now I begin to desire the things of God. I want to know who this God is who rescued me. And that becomes the next building block on there. From there, and I'm hurrying here now, what comes from knowledge, and that really translates into worship, comes self-control. Now we can keep passions under control by the grace of God. Those things that once held us in captivity now have no chains on us because now knowledge of our great God and Savior, what he's done, has now given us self-control. And now we have a passion to live for the Lord Jesus. This is obvious the work of the Spirit, isn't it? And we start submitting to the work of the Spirit. We start submitting to the Word of God, don't we? And now, for the first time in our lives, we have self-control and we say no to sin. When sin's going, hey, come over here, we go, no, I don't belong to you anymore. Jesus, Jesus died for that. I, I, Lord, I want to trust you. I don't want to walk in those ways anymore. From there, after self-control, we have perseverance. This is something that I find myself coming back to time and time again. It's a, the idea of the word here is a steadfastness under pressure. Lots of pressure on us, isn't there? There's pressure from the world. There's pressure from religions. There's pressure from all kinds of things coming from us. But it's a steadfast pressure, and I would say this, of loving Christ under difficult weight. Some of you are in this. You're trying to love the Lord Jesus Christ when, when there's a difficult situation in you that's wanting you to be angry, wanting you to, to, to be upset, wanting you to reject something or be mad about something or turn from something. It's difficult. And here, perseverance is now coming from that God-given faith and it's changed our morals and, and it's given us now a desire for knowledge and we now have self-control. And so now we're able to persevere and say, Lord, I'm going to pursue you despite what goes on around me. I'm going to pursue you. And I'm not going to do it legalistically or self-righteously. I'm going to pursue you because you died for me. From perseverance, we get to this word godliness. I talked about this earlier. Godliness is a reflection of our God and Savior in our lives. The word godliness is the idea of reflecting who he is. That's why the, the angels we saw the last couple of weeks are so brilliant and so beautiful when they come and appear to the shepherds and to Mary and the empty tomb and all that stuff is because they just came from the presence of God and they reflect his glory. We too reflect godliness. We reflect the glory of God. All that's based on our God-given faith. And you say, well, I'm not, I don't feel like I've been very godly this year. You're not living according to your God-given faith. You may be living according to your own, but you're not living according to your God-given faith. Your God-given faith, you go back to that God-given faith, that salvation, that great salvific work that he did on the cross through you and gave that unconditionally to you. You go back to that, and I promise you, you'll start growing in knowledge, self-control, moral excellence. All these things will come along. And you will ultimately begin to reflect God in a very humble way. You'll say, I want to be like you, Jesus. And basically what people will say is, I see evidence of Christ in your life. That's what it is, right? Godliness is evidence of Christ in our life. I am not like the world anymore. I'm not here to condemn them. They're, they're condemned already, the Bible says. All I'm saying is I love Jesus and it's changing me. I let those things go. Then he says brotherly kindness. This would be the next building block on there if you're building your little pyramid in your notes there. Brotherly kindness is a deep abiding kindness for those God has rescued just like us. It's a growing love for the body of Christ. There's a, there's a kindness to it. It's a, it's a phileo type of love. It shows affection and concern and kindness. The, the, Titus chapter 3 says that God in his kindness to us, right? He was kind to us. Romans chapter, oh, I shouldn't do this because it just went out of my head. He, he led us to repentance through his kindness. Chapter 2, is that right? He led us to, to himself through, through his kindness, so, so there's a kindness that comes to us where we realize, hey, Scott, man, if it were not for grace of God, where would you be? So there's a kindness that begins to flow and mean the patient doesn't mean we compromise, right? Biblical standards are biblical standards. We want to please God. We want to do things his way. And yet we can do that with great kindness. Look at the last one. Here we come to the word agapeo, love. This is striving for love unconditionally. 
Husbands, this is the word God tells us to love our wives with. He tells older women to teach younger women to teach their to teach them, teach them that they have a phileo love for their husband, affectionate, kind, because that's sometimes women struggle with that. Men struggle, they want that, but they struggle with the unconditional love. And so the Bible knows our hearts, doesn't it? So men, you're to agapeo, your wife. Love her unconditionally, and he gives us the example as Christ gave himself for us. See, all this is built on a faith. You go, Scott, how do you do that? Well, it's built on this God-given faith. Remember the bottom, the bottom foundation is this God-given faith. All of these stuff are built on top of that. And that's where we begin to be disciplined and, and diligent in our life. And we can tackle things for the Lord. We can, we can give up things that we, we thought were so important to us. We start to say, God, I want to just follow you. I want to serve you. I want to be more involved in missions or preaching or teaching or discipleship or, or helping moms or, or uh, caring for the lost or whatever it may be. You'll start to have a passion for those things when you do these things. Now, third thought, what are the results of those who strive for a Christ-glorifying, discipled, disciplined life. What are the results? Well, I love this little section. Look at this. Look at verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. Do you see the detail of the scriptures here? You can say, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I, yeah, Scott, come on, you know, it's getting late. Move on. I'll sit down here for just a second. If these qualities are yours, if you're a believer, you've been given this God-given faith which led to this beautiful stacking of blocks in our life, right? This beautiful orderly design of of moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly love and love. Um, If that's yours, and notice it says, and are increasing, look what the result is. This is incredible. This is what we want. They render you neither useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, do I want that. I do not want to be fruitless. You know, I think some Christians are like an old tree left over from last year, and you come along, and there's just this one shriveled up old apple on there. And you got to go, and you got nothing for me. People, I think the picture is this. Christ in his gospel has impacted you and I so greatly that it's produced fruit in our life. And people come along and they go, I want what you have. I've, ta- I've tasted from you the goodness of God and I want that. See, verse 8 teaches us that this is a life built on a God-given faith that now has these qualities that are, in, that are theirs now. They now own these, they possess these qualities, and they're not just there, they're getting stronger. We have more brotherly kindness. We have more love. We have more self-control. We have more perseverance as we grow old because of that God-given faith, that gospel. Does this make sense? What a beautiful verse. And I just don't want to be unfruitful, do you? I mean, Jesus died for us. Do you want to be unfruitful? I mean, they don't even go together. You can't even say a Christian, well, you know, I'm, I'm saved by fire. Wow, you really want to risk that. See, what happens is God produces these things through us. Remember, the Bible says in Ephesians 2.10 that he has prepared good works in advance for us. Have you found those good works that he's prepared in advance for you? And, and, and there's a negative side to this. Look at verse 9. For, if, for he who lacks these qualities, right? The same list, right? Moral excellence, knowledge, so forth. If you're lacking these qualities, look at this. This is a believer. Is blind or short-sighted? And you go, well, Scott, you sure it's a believer, not one? Well, look at the last phrase. Having forgotten his purification from his former sins. I tell myself all the time, when I sin, I say, Scott, you sin because for that moment, you forgot the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because if I had kept my eyes on him, I would not have turned to that sin. Is this true? This is not true. And, and, and so there's a time where we are not fruitful in our lives. And I think this is, we're blind and short-sighted. We're like blind people, you know, we're like we're arguing over a color of something and we're blind. And somebody's saying, no, it's this. I mean, look at this. We're blind, we're short-sighted because we forgot what Jesus did for us. We forgot what everything we have is based on this God-given faith. And start, things start to get 
tilting up type. Our, our, our morals start getting tilting. Our, our knowledge starts decreasing instead of growing. All that stuff. Because for a moment, we forgot what Jesus did for us, that he purified us from our sins. Now look at verse 10 here. What a beautiful benefits that we find here. Therefore, brother, I love this. Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you. If you don't do anything for Jesus your entire life, there was no motivation in you to live for Jesus, how are you going to know you're saved? I see, when it works don't save us, right? We're clear on that, right? God's work has saved us. But I think this is given to us personally. Living for Jesus, making Jesus the Lord of our life, produces something within us. And when, if that's never there, if you say, well, I walked a while, I prayed a prayer, I raised a hand, I did all that. I got a little Bible, it's written in there by a deacon, whatever. But you never, ever pursued Jesus. You never grew. You never was never fruit on your tree to bring glory to him. How do you know he called you and chose you? See, how can the magnificent work of Jesus not produce anything? Isn't that the question? So it would be saying, well, Jesus, you did this amazing work in my life. You, you, you died on this cross. You were judged in my place. But I really didn't have much result. That's a lie from the pit of hell, isn't it? All-powerful Jesus who took our sins changes us. And it's not once saved, always saved. It's once saved, always changing. Now, once saved, always saved, right? <laughs> I do believe in uh, assurance of salvation. But I like that phrase, once saved, always changing. God is always changing me through the finished work of Jesus Christ by this God-given faith to be more like him. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what he's doing. And so look at these benefits. He's, we're more certain, Right? And as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Jude verse 24 says that there is a God, our God, who will keep you from stumbling. And so when you practice these things, you practice your life built on this God-given faith. You practice everything on top of that, you won't stumble, and that's what I want. I don't know about you. I don't like stumbling for God. I don't like the fact that my Savior died on a cross, and yet I will willingly sin sometimes. I hate that about me. I, I want to live for him, don't you? So, so now we have some ways to be diligent, right? We can start to look at this and start being disciplined in our lives so we don't stumble. And I love verse 11. You've got to love this with me. Look at this. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, the works-based religions will take this verse and say, see, you do these works, and then you get into heaven. That's not what this verse means. It means when you live for Jesus, heaven seems glorious, and you can't wait to be there. When you don't live for Jesus, the last thing you're thinking about is going to heaven, isn't it? Right? When you're living in a sinful, immoral life, and you're choosing immorality instead of following the Lord, the last thing you want to see is the God of glory. When you live for Jesus based on this God-given faith as the foundation of everything we do, you can't wait to look into those gates of heaven, can't you? And you say, Scott, I'm young, and I want to get married, and I want to do this, and I want all that. Yeah, 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 I get that. I was there. But the more you grow, those things will grow, as I think Fanny Crosby wrote, grow strangely dim as you get older, because you can't wait to see Jesus. You can't wait to see the author and perfecter of your faith. That's who you're after. And so that's what this verse means. The entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior will be abundantly supplied. The gates will be wide open because of what Jesus has done. Isn't that fascinating? All right, well, let me give you just a final application here. Number four. What are the means of grace for a Christ-glorifying, disciplined life? Well, number one, the Word of God. Do you read your Bible? Pretty simple. Do you read your Bible? Do you long, as Peter says in chapter 1, verse 2, for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation? Do you, like the author of Psalms 119 says, you treasure the word of God or you store it up in your heart that you may not sin against God? I mean, do you treasure it? 
he goes, Scott, I, I really want what you're talking about. And I want what I'm talking about, right? I'm pursuing these things as well. You're not going to get there reading your own book. Does that make sense? Because we're all writing our own books all the time, right? We're really into our own books. I want this. I, I need that. I got to have this. I need her to do this, him to do this. You got to read his book. <laughs> Today is January 1st. It's a great time to start a reading program. I started mine this morning. I chose to read. I do a five-day reading program, read through the Bible every year. Last year, I took it off. I did the first time in 20 years, I didn't read through the Bible. I read through the Harmony of the Gospels. I grabbed the Harmony offline, and, it, and I walked through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I took a whole year comparing the, the different letters, the different gospel accounts, and just reading of Jesus the whole year. I did that. Some of you might be in a soul care. This has six lessons per lesson, six passages per lesson, and you study those, and you come together with a group of people, and you, and, you, and you study those together. I've done it with some groups in here. Many of you are in those right now. Look, if you want what we talked about, what this passage is talking about, you've got to be dedicated to the Word of God. It's the only thing that's not going to change. They're going to tell you how fast you can drive on this freeway out here, then they're going to change that again. <laughs> They're going to tell you not very long ago that adultery was a crime in Florida. And it's still in the books in many. Guess what? That's no longer a crime. We don't prosecute those things anymore. The Bible doesn't change. And look, if you want to grow based in your God-given faith, you've got to read the Bible. Second, you've got to pray. When we are prayerless, we really show that we are not leaning upon our God-given faith. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18 says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. That word, I've told you this before, means that you have a life that you're just one moment away from talking to the Lord. Because pray without ceasing doesn't mean this, walking around the job. Pray without ceasing is that in any moment you, can, you know you have the right and you, and you have the, here's more important, you have the desire to talk to God in that moment. That's that desire. Hayward, we're not going to do the last song. I'm sorry. Starting the year out well, aren't I? Third, worship. Worship. A God-given faith will lead you to worship. 2 Corinthians, 2, 2 Corinthians 5.15 says this, And he who died for all, so that we might live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. That's what worship is. We now live for him. Worship is not just for that hour and a half here on Sunday morning. Worship is a lifestyle, isn't it? It's, it's a lifestyle. We're one moment away from talking to God. We, we've read our Bible. We, we have truth now to help us go through this sin-fallen world. And so we have the Word of God. We have prayer. We have worship. And then we have fellowship. I am so encouraged. I, I really wondered and prayed for you that you would come out today. This is typically one of the lowest Sundays in church. One of the lowest giving Sundays. I'm looking at Pastor Brian back here. <laughs> it's one of the most, a list, least attended Sundays. A lot of us, because a lot of us pastors are so worn out, we're gone. I just happen to be here this year. Um, and, and some people don't come. Fellowship is extremely important. The, the Trinity fellowships. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They are in a triune fellowship. And Jesus says, let them be one like we are one. Fellowship is so important. Do you have people you can weep with and rejoice with in this room? Do you have someone you could call if you're hurting or going through something? Or you just come in and slip out? Are you in a discipleship group? Are you, are you going, planning on going to DTP? Are you, are you planning on being in a BFG? I mean, where are you going to fellowship? Because God wants you in fellowship. Because the word is koinonia. It is in this like-minded, connected relationship with God's people. These things will help you grow. Grow on that base, that foundation of that God-given faith. Well, so much to be reminded here, and what's a great passage, and I apologize to my dear brother Hayward, um, but I'll get back to his closing song next week. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time together. We thank you that you love us, and that you have not only saved us, but you have given us everything we need, not only in life, salvation, but you've given us everything we need to reflect you everything we need for godliness. And so it changes our morals. It changes our pursuit of knowledge. 
It changes our self-control and our, and our perseverance. It gives us kindness that we didn't have before, and it gives us an unconditional love, Lord, that we could not have on our own. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us to be diligent, that we would be disciplined in our life to pursue you. This world's not getting better. It's getting worse. The Bible tells us that, Lord. And so help us pursue these things. Lord, I want to thank you that your word reminds us over and over that your loving kindness never ceases. You never cease to love us in in your keset love, your loving kindness. Your compassion, the Bible says, never fails. You tell us that your love and your compassion are new every morning for your children. They're new every morning because you are great and you are faithful. So, Lord, you are our portion. That's what our soul now says. You are our portion. And I have no other hope but in you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would disciple us, discipline us, cause us to be diligent in our pursuit of you. And may we start that today, Lord, as we start a new year together serving you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.